welcome, welcome, welcome. A good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And welcome to Answering the Call, Exploring Scholar Activism at TWU and Beyond. It's a new semester, but same call. Are you listening? This is a collaboration between TWU Experiential Learning Office, the Pioneer Center for Student Excellence, and the Book and Common Program. Answering the Call takes a look at the intersection of scholarship and activism through the eyes of our TWU campus community, focusing on topics ranging from politics to identity to reproductive justice to public scholarship and everything in between. I promise you, every time I do an episode, I learn so much from our guests, and hopefully you will too. And today, we have a special conversation for all of you who are joining us. We're going to be chatting with two of the four Book and Common student winners, uh, Ramona Chavez and Victoria Metheny. Now, please correct me if I have gotten your names wrong. It is okay to do so. But welcome, welcome, welcome. Before I give some introductions about Ramona and Victoria, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the Book and Common program here at TWU. So for those of you who don't know, the Book and Common program is a university-wide initiative developed to foster a learning environment focused on the success of students to live, work, and lead in a diverse and complex world. The Book and Common program promotes an awareness and appreciation for the richness that is brought by embracing all forms of diversity and multicultural perspectives. In addition, it supports university initiatives such as curricular and co-curricular efforts in global connections, wellness connections, and business connections. And I'm fortunate to say that the program comes out of the Pioneer Center for Student Excellence under the direction of Dr. Teresa Lindsay. Now that you have a bit of background about the Book and Common program, let's hear about our guests. I'll start with Ramona and then I'll move to Victoria. Ramona is a community advocate, world traveler, and blogger of Mona's Family Emporium. She enjoys writing and has published articles relating to gathering at the table. Her latest projects include world celebrations and ethnography. She has lived and traveled across the globe and loves to share her experience surrounding cultural competency and awareness. Ramona was born in Mexico and migrated to the US at the age of five. And Victoria is a current undergraduate BGS student with a focus in multicultural women's and gender studies, ooh, ooh, that's where I came from, and business. As an older non-traditional student, they are already working in their chosen field of education at the Einstein School in Plano, Texas. The work in education accommodations is through the Einstein for All program, which provides outside services to non-enrolled students. Victoria has multiple learning disabilities, which has inspired and motivated their work in education. And welcome to the both of you. And I forgot to introduce myself. I am Dr. Elia Tamplin. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm the coordinator of Experiential Learning. And I get to host this lovely podcast. So let's jump right in. And as, we ask the, as I ask these questions, feel free to take uh, whatever you want first. I'll let you decide between the two of you. But first, I would love if each of you could give a summary of your Book in Common essay. Well, kind of the 30,000 foot view of my essay, which I, which I titled Empathy is What Brought Me Here. Um, it's, it's really an aerial view of my work with learning disabilities uh, and how my own learning disabilities have served as a motivation and kind of a litmus test um, for my work with current high school students transitioning to college. Thank you, Victoria. Really good. So my um, essay was basically an explanation of reasons of why I basically blog, why I've kind of um, started this personal uh, narrative about myself and my experience. Um, and I share basically some of the choices that I've made in the past and how they were based on a lot of a lot of um, thoughts of what it was to live righteous. And so I just share my experiences and um, that's basically the summary of the essay. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And so listening to both of you and having read both your essays, which I, I thought were wonderful, again, everybody here may understand and resonate with the fact that we have our own experiences and that often can inspire 
what caused us to act. But what I'm wondering is, as you were writing these essays, what surprised you the most about yourself or your story as you were writing it? Mona, I'll let you go first if you would like. <laughs> so I think what um, really surprised me the most, um, just the essay itself, uh, probably that I won. <laughs> I really uh, was very surprised about that. Um, when I submitted it, I thought, you know, I feel like there has to be like a bridge between academia and community work. And so I just thought maybe this is the opportunity to showcase it. <laughs> yeah, winning, winning was absolutely a surprise um, because I know there's so many wonderful things going on in the community coming from TWU students. Um, but I think for me, it was kind of a connecting of several dots um, because I, I sat down when I wrote my essay and I did it all in one go. Um, and I'm sure if anyone reads it, they'll know that I did it all in one go. Um, but it was, it was very cathartic um, to be able to share my own experiences and know that because of those experiences that I have some level of empathy and understanding of what my students go through. And so could both of you tell us how those experiences, each of your respective experiences, move you towards action in your day-to-day -day life? Oh. Well, I think for myself, I was very, um, you know, I was raised in the U.S. I was five, so I started my whole education from a young girl here. And I believe that um, I um, use those experiences that, that I've, you, that I, that I've, um, those experiences that I've grown up with. Um, then I traveled a little bit around, um, lived in England for two years and have visited um, other parts of the world. And I've thought, you know, I think the, us Americans really see the world totally different. And um, if I could add a little bit of my experience and what I've um, been able to explore, um, maybe so, not all of us can have that experience then maybe we can bring that awareness that is necessary in the U.S. Um, for me, I think the, the biggest day-to-day -day effect that I see from my own experiences, and I'm, I'm very upfront with my learning disabilities, um, I've got severe ADHD um, and dyscalculia, which is kind of the number side of, dys, of dyslexia. Um, and so, a lot of what I experience on a day-to-day -day basis is if I'm working with a student who needs accommodations uh, either in high school, standardized testing, or eventually in college, um, it's really a lot of self-connection. If, if I were on that side of the desk and I, were in, I was in this, this student's shoes, um, would these actions be serving? And it, that's really the constant question that I'm asking myself. Yeah, and to some extent, I think you and Mona really hit the nail on the head of having that self-reflection based on the experiences that you have. So that's really helpful as I'm thinking about what I was reading in both of your essays. And what I find interesting is that both of you, to some extent in your own different ways, really value this piece around awareness and diversity. And using yourself, like you said, Victoria, as kind of a litmus test um, to see what you know and where you may have some gaps in your knowledge and how you can fill those things. I think that's a wonderful gift to have, a skill to cultivate. And for anybody who is out there like, oh my goodness, all three of us sound like this just comes naturally. No, it is a process. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Victoria is shaking her head fervently. Uh, so they, they know. Uh, that this is a process that comes with a lot of self-reflection, writing, journaling, whatever gets you there, but it's all a process of being able to be aware of what your experiences are and how they may be different from others in the world. So we figured out what caused you to act according to your essay, but what I want to know is what else caused, caused you to act?
I have a very hard time seeing something broken and not wanting to fix it. That's, that's really what it, what it boils down to for me. Um, because the, when, we, when you talk about disabilities in education, there's really two separate sides. There is the uh, medical disability side um, that I don't have experience in, but there's also this learning disability side uh, that very much is, I would consider, an invisible disability um, because it's how someone processes uh, information and then relates it to the world around them. Um, and so, you know, to, to write this essay and to continue to act in my community, part of it was just timing. Truthfully, um, there were a few events leading up to actually writing my essay um, that, that put me in the right headspace. Um, but, you know, that continuous call to action is seeing my students do well and seeing the impact that they're making. But then the conversations um, that some of these accommodations cases start uh, and being able to view those students as a whole individual as opposed to just one aspect of their identity, that, that disability. I think for myself, you know, I, um, well, I was an expat and returning back to the yes, I saw a lot of discord and I just could, couldn't believe that I had been through that personally about 40 years ago and here we are still trying to figure out who deserves to have um, a great education or who deserves to have fair treatment. And I just couldn't st stand there anymore. I couldn't just, you know, just be in between. I had to either take a stand or continue accepting what, you know, the other group had always been trying to push their own agenda. And so um, that's really what called me to act. But there was a, um, a comment that was made on Twitter that kind of was mocking at blogging. This was about, you know, <clears throat> about a year ago. And that's, I had just started my blogging about a year before that. So I think that's what really prompted me like, okay, I mean, do they not realize that we're living in, you know, technology world now that this is the life and then COVID hit and it was like, hello. <laughs> so that definitely prompted me. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting that both of you talk about, right, this discomfort or even maybe some anger around seeing broken systems uh, and the effects and impacts that they have on folks who are often marginalized across different types of identities. And so for Victoria, that's folks with disabilities. Ramona, that's folks from marginalized racial ethnic backgrounds. But so I love that theme, but I'm wondering, Mona, you talk specifically about blogging, but what outlet do either of you use to create change? What tools do you use? Well, I'll go if you're not ready yet, Victoria. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I wish I had blogging. Maybe that's, you know, in the next, in the next few years. Um, but really, be, because disabilities in education is, is restricted to these sort of three systems, you know, you've got uh, idea, education law on the high school side. Um, but once you get to standardized testing uh, and college disability services, it actually all funder, falls under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and some of it is civil rights, but the majority of it is ADA law. Um, and so for me, that outlet is, is just using the broken system that I want to change, but using it, you know, for the, for the benefit of, of the students that I work with um, until that time comes where we can do, hopefully, fingers crossed, just a complete overhaul. I think the outlet, um, definitely blogging. Um, I had no idea. I think I was very... Um, I'm not I'm very savvy, tech savvy, but then um, you know, just pushing myself to catching up with the modern world and uh, using um, the internet, blogging, just to be able to get the, that word out there is definitely an outlet. But I think, um, I believe I also have used the resources available while in school at Texas Women's University 
and um, I've been able to educate myself on how to go forth and uh, be a little bit more organized and pragmatic. Yeah, so it sounds like still figuring out some tools and having some go-to tools uh, which are really helpful and I wonder if money was an object, there were no barriers to time, resources, what do you think you could do to make the greatest impact or the greatest change in the areas that you are the most passionate about? Well, um, for me, I think I've seen just the experience that I've had through the education system and then also from um, now my children um, and then going back to graduate school I think education can definitely um, benefit from um, a lot of more um, advocacy. So I'm very happy to see um, that Texas Women's University has events such like this to be able to promote that bridge between the community and the um, academia. Um, I don't know. For me, that's kind of a hard question because on one hand, um, if, if time and money were no object, I'd just want to get every college counselor in a room and have a very serious discussion uh, with them um, or, you know, even, even changing legislation to address learning disabilities specifically um, and how in society we approach disabilities as a whole uh, in the services that are offered. But, you know, I think it would also be cool to have my own podcast or a YouTube channel or something to be giving more relevant information as it's happening in real time, um, as opposed to, you know, colleges are looking at this differently or ACT and SAT are, are wanting different types of documentation and having to get that kind of as it hits us, as opposed to when it's announced. So it's really interesting that both of you brought up education as the system that seems to have the most or one of the most issues um, in dealing with marginalized folks. And so what I'm wondering is, as you think about education or continue to work as students within the educational system, how can you bridge your passions, the things that call you to act with what you're doing at TWU as students? Oh, uh, well, as the multicultural women and gender studies, you know, student, um, a bit, a big part of that, uh, a big part of that program is just the idea of intersectionality um, and how these different facets of our identity all, you know, just beautifully come together in a, in a human being. Um, and so that's something that has really inspired me in my work with learning, learning disabilities and accommodations um, is how are we evaluating this whole individual? Um, as, a, as an education community, are we speaking about, um, you know, black female students with learning disabilities the same way that we're talking about white female students with learning disabilities? Um, and even then, what's the difference between how a literal child is expected to deal with this disability just across gender barriers? Um, and what services can we provide and how can we navigate around the biases that those students already face? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm, I was in, in a place in my life where um, financial means was not an issue. So I was able to go back to school and pay for my own tuition. So for those, I remember when I was younger, um, when I did my bachelor's in public health, you know, I had to pay for it all by myself. And then it took me years later to pay off those loans and whatnot. So I think um, now that I'm seeing it from that viewpoint where I've actually uh, been able to make it to where I never even dreamed I would be. And um, now that I'm back at school, I think, um, you know, the reason I enrolled at Texas Women's University was to study um, that diversity program. That's what motivated me. And um, I think, you know, there had, 
that there needs to be, like, again, I said, that bridge between academia and the community, you know, those leaders that are out there doing the grassroots movements, there needs to be some kind of um, connection um, between them and the, um, um, the leaders at our um, institutions. I think, um, you know, both need to literally gather together, come and share ideas and for the betterment of the world, you know, I think if we were all more global citizens in mind, then I think um, we would look at things so differently. Yeah, and those are wonderful points to be made. And, you know, Victoria, you talked about intersectionality. And for those of you who don't know what the theory of intersectionality is, it is a theory that has traditional roots in Black feminist thought um, and really race women, Black women, uh, from way, way back in the 1800s, as well as women in the Global South. And intersectionality speaks to how systems of oppression, structural forces such as racism, white supremacy, classism, homophobia, class uh, ableism, you name it, all intersect to shape our lived experiences, our, our realities as different beings on this earth. But also, it looks at how we're very much kind of in the same boat, even if we're not in the same storm. And so, as Mona and Victoria talk about their experiences, and particularly how they engage in these experiences of tying academia to their communities, it's important to think about, and I and invite you all out there to think about how, what your positionality is, and what does that call you to do? What are you seeing in the world that are gaps or complete erasures or problems with the system, all, all the systems? Uh, and what can you do to fix it or to at least contribute to fixing it? And so Mona and Victoria, that brings me to a question because I've heard both of you to some extent say, bridging this gap between academia and the community. And so what I want to know is, how do you think you, what's your role, um, what role do you think you can best play in bridging the gap between your communities and higher education? Well, I think, you know, Growing up, um, I saw so much injustice being done just um, from the financial standpoint. Uh, my father was um, equivalent masters in Mexico, um, came to the U.S. and bought a home. And I think that when, um, you know, the economy just went downhill in Mexico, he had to start over in the U.S. And none of his education was um, embraced. So he had to start, you know, with G his GED, um, getting his, um, you know, learning English, getting his, you know, going up the ladder. And it took him about eight years to finalize his, um, his education just with a bachelor's. And by then I was in high school. So I saw him going through all of these steps, trying to get to where he, he was felt he was passionate to be at. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I see that as, you know, as it, 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 there shouldn't be a hindrance to why somebody wants to get an education, why they want to continue. And so I see my role as that of one that has experienced it and I've seen it play through and um, I think I was always told, you have this passion in you, but they never really directed me on how to go about it. <clears throat> I just knew I had to get a bachelor's to get ahead. And, um, and I, I figured if I got that and started making money, then I had made it. But really, there was more to it. And, you know, so I believe that my role now 
as one of the older <laughs> bloggers probably out there is to be able to solicit some of that assistance to those younger that are just coming up and not maybe don't know this information readily about how to navigate the education system and how to feel valued um, when others aren't seeing for your your gender or your um, description, whatever it might be? Um, I, I think my role kind of has two, two prongs to it, um, honestly. I think the first one is, is being comfortable with self-identification um, because disabilities is something that people are either very upfront about or not upfront about at all, and that is their decision to make. Um, but when I'm up front with my disabilities, uh, especially with high school students, it oftentimes signals them that it's okay for them to talk about their struggles um, and to, you know, get, get comfortable with, with that term learning disability. Um, and so some of it, I think, is just being present and being aware and speaking. Um, the other side of that, uh, and this I think touches back to my studies with Texas Woman, is that I'm extraordinarily aware of the privilege that I carry in academia. I am a young millennial white woman. And as a result, my job is to make ways where I can, but also to make space for students and families and other people to, to be able to speak up upfront and open about their disabilities in a way that isn't, um, in a way that doesn't cause the receiving end uh, of these conversations to give us what a student needs because of pity um, or because they just want the problem to go away. Because the more these systems are used and the, and the more, um, especially in academia, I think the more that we see learning disabilities um, and we're comfortable with that, the more people in that, that sort of bottom line number, um, the more that number grows. Because I think when you talk about learning disabilities, there's this misconception that um, someone can only have one or that if they just outwork their disability that they'll get ahead. Um, and sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it's not. Um, so kind of helping, helping people who make those decisions understand the gravity of how many people you're talking about when you talk about learning disabilities. Yeah, that's wonderful insight. And for those of you out there, hopefully you gain some strategies, right? Uh, oftentimes it can feel quite daunting to, to think about little old us individually and what we can do in the world. And Mona and Victoria have talked about representation. They have talked about role modeling. They've talked about giving back either through support and assistance um, or actually working with folks. They've also talked about talking to policymakers, right? That's one way that you can do some real work or a couple of ways that you can do some real work rather. So, of course, we talk about all of this work and there's a lot of work to be done. So, what challenges, if any, have you encountered as you try to create change? In a word, hubris. <laughs> hubris is, uh, at least in the, in the disability community, is a huge problem um, because you've got the sometimes the hubris of a student that I see that, yes, you know, I have this learning disability, but I cannot work it or, you know, I'm just not going to talk about it and eventually it will just resolve itself. Um, and then there's also this hubris on the policy side that you know, once we create a policy to address people with disability, all people with disabilities, that problem solved. Like, we don't need to go back and touch on that again or expand on it. Um, and honestly, I hubris. It all, it all kind of boils down to that. New word for me to understand. <laughs> I love that. I think for myself, um, you know, I think it's just the... Um, the lack of confidence that I had as a young person or growing up in the U.S. that nobody was expecting me to have a voice or to um, to even express myself intelligently. Just 
you know, the fact that nobody would confirm or give feedback. Um, <clears throat> I had maybe one or two teachers that kind of looked at my work and thought, oh, that's really nice, but they just couldn't picture and put like my, maybe my background into what I was trying to say. And um, so it's, you know, that emotional toll. Um, I think I um, have had to do a lot of self-care. <laughs> I've learned how to do that uh, through, the, through the whole um, coming back, like I said, to the U.S. and seeing just where our, our country had been at in the last few years that I had been gone. And um, so just probably that, the lack of confidence and maybe um, the um, emotional toll that, um, you know, people don't understand when you're trying to advocate. Um, just that um, really feels like I, that's such a challenge for me. Um, you know, I, financial means to me now is pretty attainable but I still feel frustrated when I see a leader that's just not wanting to modernize. I don't know if that's the right word, but just wanting to make that change to make our situations better for everybody. Yeah. So follow-up question then, how do you take care of yourselves? I do a lot of walking. <laughs> I do a lot of walking, a lot of thinking, a lot goes on in my brain. So I need a way to distract me um, in nature. Um, I also enjoy spending time with my family. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a gardener. Uh, I, I, for those who listen later on the podcast, I'm surrounded by plants and in my background. Um, so I, I do a lot of, of gardening work and growing things. Um, and I've actually got a first grader. Uh, who's doing virtual school this year. And so there's a lot of Minecraft right now <laughs> in our house. Nice. That sounds, yeah, Minecraft is pretty cathartic. Um, but I also love that both of you get in touch with nature uh, and, as a way to ground and take care of yourselves. So kudos to you. And now we're at the last question, at least from me, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, so for this last question, it's, for the audience members out there, and I want you to finish this sentence. For students who are eager to create and or fight for change in their communities and world, it is important to. That's not for us, right? Oh, it's for you. Oh, it is. Okay, I thought you meant it's for the audience, sorry. <laughs> I believe um, education. So it's important to obtain an education? Yes. Um, I would say it's important to be empathetic um, with the situations that others, others are facing, um, but also to be willing to connect as much as possible with other people, with the environment around you, with the systems and processes that are already in place. Just connect yourself. Okay. Well, that is all the questions for me. So now I'm gonna open it up to the audience. So if you have any questions, please feel free to type them in the Q&A box and we'll ask them to Victoria and Mona. So I don't know if you all can see the chat, so I'll read them. Uh, Jagna said, I'm glad I got a chance to hear you both and came across a new word, hubris. <laughs> and MCC asked, can you expand on the need for education and empathy? So Mona, you said it's important for folks to have education. So I'm going to ask you, what does that mean? And what's the best way to get education? 
So it definitely starts with, you know, um, during the high school years, it's just being focused, but um, it goes beyond that. I think, um, you know, I've talked about how I never, even though I kind of wished and wanted to continue with, um, you know, graduate degree, I just never felt I qualified. So I think just being able to recognize that anyone can pursue uh, beyond, you know, just the bachelor's or, but if that bachelor's is all you want to do, then, you know, that's great. But if there's even a doubt when you're young, take care of it. <laughs> and let me ask a follow-up question. So you talk a lot about formal education, but what role does informal education play in your development or would you suggest plays in the development of folks who want to create change in their communities in world? Yes, that's a very, very good point. I um, find myself living in a neighborhood that calls themselves very educated, but yet when it comes to very um, human issues, they don't seem to have the education to be able to manage on how to uh, go about a better um, resident or better community neighborhoods th that do uh, welcome others or everyone. And so I think um, that goes for, you know, be being a part of a community organization such as a church that is well, um, well organized, that has leaders that are well um, educated and that can be able to offer to um, everybody um, a place to belong. And so uh, just to make sure that I'm following you correctly, you are saying that folks should not only have the formal education, which is important, but they also should engage in informal education, including looking for leaders and community that help them become well-informed about the world around them uh, and maybe challenging some originally held beliefs and becoming a more global citizen. Is that correct? That is perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And Victoria, can you expand on the need for empathy? Well, you know, I, I think when you talk about, when, when we talk about empathy, that textbook definition of um, being able to identify your own um, experiences in alignment with someone else's, yes. But I, I think on kind of an across the board level, not just education, empathy is really just meeting the other person wherever they are. That's it. So if, if you know that you're working or speaking to someone who may not have fair access to the information that you're giving or the information that they need to receive elsewhere, we're not, we just don't want to hold them to a standard of, you know, in order to get services for your disability, you have to meet this bar so high up, bring yourself up to that level before we'll talk to you. It's where are you? What can I do to help you? Um, and regardless of, of kind of the place that they're at in that process, being willing to step up and say, all right, how can I help you now and here? Um, and not whenever you meet kind of this predetermined standard. Okay, and so let me ask the same question to you both, but for different reasons. So back to Mona, what do you think is the barrier to folks getting formal education? And part two, do you think that, and this is a very leading question, but do you think that obtaining education makes people more tolerant? Mm -hmm. um. So I think um, the barrier for formal education is usually money. Um, but, you know, I think with all the available um, opportunities and even just getting a loan, because that's what I ended up doing, um, I had actually, when I started um, college, I had just applied that my senior year of high school, I had applied for my citizenship. I had always been a resident here. And um, <clears throat> coming to end my high school, I was considering 
well, you know, it would be a not an amazing thing. My parents can't afford education for me. So I thought, well, I would love to apply for a scholarship. But a lot of those scholarships had restrictions or were only offered to U.S. citizens. So I thought, ah, oh, there's no way I can apply for those. So I'm going to go ahead and went through that rigorous, um, you know, uh, path of becoming a U.S. citizen because I was already 18 by that time and I couldn't become a U.S. citizen um, under my parents. So um, I had to, um, you know, wait. It was a long process and it was also expensive. It was, you know, in, I think back then it was about 400, maybe $500. Now it's probably in the thousands to become a U.S. citizen. And I uh, believe that was definitely a barrier for myself and it is for many individuals, you know, that can't get it so written, the money um, to pay uh, for school, number one. And then um, I believe the second part of it, what was, can you repeat the second part? And the second part is, do you believe that obtaining an education makes people more tolerant? So I would say that it can, you know, definitely, um, do get um, maybe some history background on um, some of the issues that we see or have experienced. But I think what ends up happening is people kind of forget or kind of make themselves feel better by saying, oh, that happened, you know, a few years ago. It doesn't apply to us anymore. So I think continually we need like that reawakening, that, um, um, that reminder that unfortunately we do it, you know, wherever we're at, where, where we find ourselves, whether we're vacationing somewhere, the way we treat those that are serving us, whether we have people coming into our home, the way we treat them, um, you know, that all matters. And so we have to continually remind ourselves that we are all humans and that we all have those needs. Thank you. And Victoria, my question to you is around empathy. And so what do you think are the major barriers to people engaging empathetically, particularly to people who have marginalized identities or identities that are different than theirs? Um, I, I do, I, I think, you know, there's two answers to that question. With the learning disability community specifically, um, I, there is, for whatever reason, this um, concept of accommodations being an advantage. And that is not the case. Uh, accommodated learning is simply, you know, meeting the student where they're at but it, it's just giving them a fair opportunity to access the information that they need and to show what they know. Um, and so I, I think a big part of that is just knowing that a student who receives accommodations, they don't have an advantage over you. Um, on the kind of general side, um, I, I think it's really a willingness to change your heart on this, um, because you know, back to the previous question of if a formal if a formal education creates more tolerant people, um, my answer is no. Uh, formal education is designed to train your mind and train behaviors, even, but it's not necessarily designed to train your heart and how you regard others. And so, tagging along with what Mona said, how you treat other people and the lengths that you're willing to go to just let someone be themselves is a huge step. And I definitely have more questions, but so do, do our audience members, so I'll hold off on mine. So MCC asks, how can I get more informed or involved in the community? So what strategies would you suggest? I think for, um, you know, just in Texas, for example, I think what we find is that <clears throat> the system is, you have your smaller um, compartments, you know, government. And <clears throat> although I would love for all of them to have a formal education background, sometimes they don't. Um, <clears throat> but yet the community looks at them as leaders to be able to give direction. 
So I would start off definitely, you know, variety of ways in um, simply just heading out to the library and checking out books, but also being informed um, in our, um, you know, through social media and whatnot. And, and you know, it's, it's one of those, those ways of doing life now. So I think just there's a, a different ways of doing that uh, for, for the normal average um, citizen or resident. I think if you can just do a balance of where you get your information, um, I think you will be well um, directed. Um, I would say take inventory of what you can reasonably offer. You know, what's in your wheelhouse? Um, I'm a part of a special interest group with the National Association of College Admissions Counselors, NACAC, uh, for specifically learning disabilities. And um, I got involved in the leadership and administration in that group because I'm young and I had a Zoom account and I said, hey, what can I do to help? I can do, you know, graphic design for the organization, or I can host the Zoom meetings with the larger audiences. Um, and I had something that they needed, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily my expertise, but it was something that I could do. And so I think in getting involved with those communities, you know, take that inventory, but also understand that if you have something to offer, that's something. There's no, I think when you're, when you're talking about advocacy and getting involved in, in your individual communities, there's no such thing as not enough. What you have is enough. Bring it to the table. Thank you both. And someone asked, how can I support or help those with learning disabilities? So specifically for you, Victoria. Um, it, it really kind of, it depends on, depends on how much time you have and how far you're willing to go. Um, I mean, truthfully, we'll take everything from writing letters to senators and policymakers um, to volunteering to read books out loud at your local schools or community organizations. Um, that's something that is kind of missed in volunteerism with learning disabilities is, you know, if you have a student with dyslexia who goes to a tutoring center and they need something read out loud, that tutoring center may not actually be equipped to handle that and to, and to get them what they need. So anything, um, you know, anything that you can do would be helpful. Um, but I mean, absolutely volunteering at your local, uh, local schools and community organizations um, and then if you hear something that sounds wrong, do your research and then say something about it. Make it a topic of conversation. Yeah, those are wonderful strategies. Mm -hmm. And then one more question, uh, and this is a, a pretty long one, so I'll repeat if you need me to, and I'm also gonna paraphrase, but when you recognize that there is a barrier or an obstacle within the educational system, where can you or should you speak up so that the school pays closer attention to correct it and create a healthier learning environment? Well, um, I, I think on the public education side, if you pay property taxes, pay attention to those board meetings um, and pay attention to what those school districts are doing um, because if all, all of their budgets are, are public knowledge, but, uh, or at least accessible, um, but especially with special education, when they come to do budget cuts, they're not cutting the athletic programs. They're, they're cutting SPED and they're cutting salaries, um, for those teachers and TAs. And it's, you know, it'll be briefly brought up in a board meeting and then they just never talk about it again because it's a done deal. Um, so, you know, uh, just being there and listening to what they have to say and being willing to say, Hey, like, that's not what you said last meeting and mm -hmm. things have changed what changed. Um, but also even as a student or as a faculty or administrative member in secondary education, uh, I, I think, you know, using whatever position you're in to, um, help people who make the rules, uh, understand that policies are flexible. They can be flexible um, so that when you have a student that you need to reach them and they're not at 
you know, kind of that standard incoming level that you have the freedom to bend the rules a little bit to at least get them in the door and get the process started. I think um, those are great options and I um, would just add that maybe get to know your representatives who represents you um, in the education system and the board um, that's uh, supposed to be serving you and talk with them, <clears throat> get to know them and get to see what their ideas are because whenever an issue does come up, you already know that they're going to be strong on this issue or whatever their case may be. So I think if you, um, you know, see yourself as, or see them as working for you because you are the person that's paying for the taxes that they're representing. So I think if you just see yourself as a, uh, you know, part of the team per se, then um, it'll help to be able to um, see when you can speak up. You can have an ear that can listen to you on what needs to be changed, for example. Yeah, those are really great strategies. And for thinking about what you can do as a TWU student, the list is long. The chancellor has a suggestion box that you can type into and fill. Um, also, as a student, there are free speech areas. So if you want to make it vocalized that way, that's one way to do it. There's also student organizations. You can get involved in the, any organization of your choosing. Um, so those are ways in which you can work by yourself or in community to make sure that even on this campus, you're, com you're contributing to creating a healthy learning environment uh, for all involved. Welcome, welcome, welcome. A good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And welcome to Answering the Call, Exploring Scholar Activism at TWU and Beyond. It's a new semester, but same call. Are you listening? This is a collaboration between TWU Experiential Learning Office, the Pioneer Center for Student Excellence, and the Book and Common Program. Answering the Call takes a look at the intersection of scholarship and activism through the eyes of our TWU campus community, focusing on topics ranging from politics to identity to reproductive justice to public scholarship and everything in between. I promise you, every time I do an episode, I learn so much from our guests, and hopefully you will too. Thank you.